the oil and gas industry is getting out of a lot of obligations these days. They have pushed for and gotten regulatory pauses, rollbacks, tax breaks, all kinds of good stuff. Although, of course, the American Petroleum Institute is still insisting that the industry is, quote unquote, not getting a bailout. One of the big ways that the industry is getting off the hook for its responsibilities is in the case of its wells, and more specifically, what happens to them when they're not producing oil or gas anymore. That is becoming an even bigger problem amidst the COVID-19 pandemic because a lot of wells have been temporarily idled, and some percentage of those will end up being abandoned altogether. Shale gas companies are already starting to go out of business in various parts of the country and more are announcing their downfall every day. It remains to be seen whether demand will actually return to normal levels after the pandemic. Plus, there will be an energy transition at some point, and a lot of folks are starting to wonder what will happen to these oil and gas sites once that transition gets underway. In order to get permits to drill oil or gas wells, fossil fuel companies are required to get permits. And with those permits, they have to commit to plugging and remediating well sites when they're done with them. It's an expensive proposition and one that the industry tends to put off as long as possible, in part because no states actually require these companies to put up the money for plugging and remediating wells before they start drilling. A new report finds that on top of all that, the oil and gas industry has been dramatically underestimating the cost of doing this remediation for years. Report out today from Carbon Tracker finds that in fact, plugging shale wells can cost up to 10 times what companies have been estimating. That's a huge financial liability that's not on the books of shale gas companies, which are already struggling financially for various other reasons. That report is called It's Closing Time. The huge bill to abandon oil fields comes early. Joining me today are this report's co-authors, Greg Rogers, who we've heard from in previous episodes, and Rob Schuerk, Executive Director of Carbon Tracker North America, to talk about just how many of these wells we're looking at, what these costs may be, and what the heck states are going to do about it. We'll have that conversation in a minute after a word from this week's sponsor. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled. spend an average of 90% of their time indoors, which is bad news because according to the EPA, indoor air could be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air. In some cases, it could be a hundred times more polluted. Data shows that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths around the world. I have a strange little problem in my neck of the woods, and that is that everybody likes to burn their garden trash and other trash too. Lots of trash burning going on in my neighborhood. Not great. Air Doctor has really, really helped. I just fire it up on days when I can tell everybody's lighting their trash fires, and it keeps the household air clean. Air Doctor is the air purifier that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, Money, ABC, and more. 
Air Doctor filters out dangerous contaminants and allergens like pollen, pet dander, dust mites, and mold so your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use the promo code DRILLED to get up to 39% off or up to $300 off depending on the model. Lock this special offer in by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code DRILLED. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. you could maybe start with sort of the genesis of the report. What made you realize that this was something that we needed data on? Really, we started, and this is a combination of, of Greg's longstanding interest, interest in AROs and Carbon Tracker's focus on, on really the implications of the energy transition for, for fossil fuel companies and their mm-hmm. investors. We started looking at uh, how, uh, you know, asset retirement obligations on the balance sheet uh, were reported, uh, how frequently they were revised, those estimates. Uh, and had a working thesis that you know, Greg has largely built over, over years of observation on this as to why that was the case, which was that as assets be, uh, were retired, people had to revise those estimates to reflect the actual costs. And those were, were a lot more significant. And we took sort of that work and sort of thinking about, well, in terms of an energy transition, what's going to happen here? Um, are, are these assets all going to live their full estimated useful lives, right? Uh, if we can't extract and burn all of these fossil fuels consistent with our climate targets, how are we, how are we actually really going to expect that these assets do, you know, live another 30, 40, 50, in some cases, you know, to through the end of the century, if you're thinking about oil sands assets, for example. Mm-hmm. So it was, so, so our initial focus was actually on individual companies and what they've got on the balance sheets and what kind of impact if we saw something called ARO acceleration. And you see a little bit on that in this paper because it's still an important concept. But as we looked at it, we thought, well, okay, there's a great story here in the U.S. Let's focus on the U.S. Let's focus on onshore and let's look and see, right, uh, you know, what, you know, in addition to just looking at 
the corporate reported figures, which don't really give you any of the backstory, right? They give you the discounted present value at some discount rate that the company has used. You don't have the undiscounted numbers. You don't know what it really costs. But when we looked around for, for what things really cost, we saw a lot of claims from industry and in many cases from the regulators as well, I think parroting some of those industry numbers that were looking at you know tens of thousands of dollars or less to close a lot of these wells. Uh, including, you know, the one we the the one estimate from the uh, from the uh, Baker Hughes that we have in there, that's focused on you know thirty three thousand dollars to close wells in places like the Eagleford with average, uh, you know, wellbore depths, total vertical depths of like nearly ten thousand feet. Looking at actual data, there were there was a lot of evidence to suggest that those costs were. To be far greater. It was a, a big aha for, for me, Amy, is we were, we were searching for actual cost data, mm. uh, preferably not estimates, but you know, actual costs. What, what did it cost to plug and abandon these onshore wells? And it, it started to look like there was a, a self-referential loop going on between industry and state orphan well programs that are largely funded by industry where um, industry would would uh, point to the orphan well cost experience which was the only available cost data we could find in the united states right and say uh hey we 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 like those costs uh which seem to be you know ranging from five thousand to up to forty thousand dollars a well mm -hmm. and uh so we're going to reference those costs as uh, uh, in, in terms of the economic analysis of uh, the, you know shale and fracking in the in the U.S. onshore onshore oil industry. So we ha we had this um, orphan well data, but one thing that started to stand out from that is that most of those wells are are old and they're shallow. Mm -hmm. So there's there's a, uh, you know, just millions of undocumented wells, even pre-regulatory wells in the United States. And a lot of those have found their ways and in, way into orphan well programs. Some of these wells are just a few hundred feet deep uh, and, and don't even penetrate a, uh, a groundwater source. So we, we knew that when <clears throat> we saw that, that the, uh, average depth, the vertical depth of the shale wells was, was much, much deeper, you know, ranging from 6,500 to you know, 12,000 feet of vertical depth. And we're wondering, well, what's the correlation between uh, depth and cost? And there were a few studies out that, that looked at the U.S. orphan well data, suggesting there, there, there was a correlation between depth and cost, but that it was linear. So just you know, $10 a foot, let's say, and it doesn't matter whether it's a thousand foot well or a, a 20,000 foot well, it's gonna cost $10 a foot. And you had uh, some state bonding regimes actually incorporated a dollar per foot in determining bond values to the, as financial assurance for the plug and abandonment cost. So that was interesting and something that obviously made depth relevant. Uh, but the, the most important finding was uh, came out of research of uh, industry data outside the United States and Australia that indicated that the correlation between depth and cost was exponential rather than linear. And when we looked more closely at the orphan well data that was, was available uh, in the US, 
it also seemed to support an exponential correlation rather than a linear correlation. Could you guys speak a little bit to how or why is it that there's no transparency about these costs? No one has made them provide that cost information. They have no interest in providing that information, just to, just to make that clear. Right. Right. So someone would need to be interested in having them do it. And I think that really, at this, you know, at the regulatory level, you're suffering from some level of capture, which you'll typically see when you have a, a regulator for a specific regulated industry. But that was also combined with the belief that I think a lot of people have had about oil and gas and the idea that this industry may not have the money on its balance sheet today to close all of its wells immediately, but they will close over time and it will keep making money and keep drilling wells and there'll be cash flows in the future because we all need energy, right? Mm -hmm. If we're going to have economic growth, it's correlated with it. And so it's going to be, uh, you know, this is going to, this is going to, there be cash in the future to close these. So why worry about it? Why worry about what the actual costs are? Right. Um, the problem, of course, is all those assumptions have been completely upended by the energy transition. Right. And in the pandemic, right, has has been sort of a shot across the bow on that to realize how quickly things can turn, potentially shut in. And it gives a glimpse also of the financial condition that the companies are then in. Mm -hmm. And the arguments, of course, they're going to make, which is that we can't afford to do that now. So I think that, that has kind of shaken things up. And so the question is really, should regulators still not pay attention to what these actual costs are and or will they continue to do that? Um, and I think that those, you know, that's that's a, becoming increasingly uh, bigger and bigger issue. For most of, of the oil and gas industry's history, this it's been sort of a self-bond, self-reporting situation, and states are starting to realize, uh-oh, this is, this is potentially going to leave us holding a bill that we can't necessarily afford to pay either. Can you just talk about what this problem looks like for states and what some of them are trying to do about it? One of the things that's, that's happening is that the coronavirus pandemic has accelerated the shut-in of wells, which has drawn a lot of attention to, to this topic and kind of shining a light on the, the uh, reality that the orphan well funds are not sufficient uh, to plug an abandoned, you know, a large number of wells that are becoming idle and non-economic at the same time. But the states were, were realizing the problem they were in before the pandemic hit. And they were starting to do things like increasing bond amounts, increasing idle wealth fees, and tightening up on the regulatory flexibility about allowing temporary abandonment of wells. So temporary abandonments is a state when a well is uh, shut in, but not permanently. So production is stopped, but the well is left in a, in a state of uh, limbo where at least in theory, it can be started uh, back up again. So those are the types of things I think that we, we see states doing. And there's a, there's a few other uh, actions, but essentially they're tightening up on the credit, Amy. And I think the, yeah. the easiest way to think about this is that the legal obligation to plug and abandon an oil well at the end of its economic you know, useful life is a, uh, is a liability to the state. And normally, if you think of a, of a debt like this as a, that has a financial consequences, the creditor would charge interest on that or require collateral. 
So effectively, self-bonding means free uh, credit on these liabilities. And that's largely been the case uh, for, for decades. But what the states uh, are, are doing, they can either require immediate uh, permanent retirement of wells that have been sitting idle for a long time, or they can increase the carrying costs of that outstanding debt. I feel like every day I'm seeing another news story about a shale company uh, declaring bankruptcy or warning that it will be going bankrupt soon. <laughs> so what is the real situation that a lot of these states are in right now? How much of this debt does it look like some states are going to be absorbing no matter what? You know, initially the parameters that are important trying to understand a uh, you know, statewide orphan well risk would, would include the number of wells an average cost per well, the bond coverage, so how many, as Rob was speaking, how much security is actually in place. Then, then you get into some more complex issues like the useful life of the well. I mean, are all the wells, do they need to be plugged and abandoned now? Or you know, just are some going to continue to produce for, um, for many years into the future? And then the credit risk of the operator. So to the extent that they're self-bonding, can, can the, is the operator good for it? Will the operator remain good for it? I'll give you just a couple of pieces of information, you know, that help f fill in that framework. So mm -hmm. just look at the number of operating and idle wells that are out there. And the numbers are pretty staggering. So these are not, these are not orphan wells, pre-regulatory wells, undocumented wells. These are wells that are, you know, currently out there tagged to a specific operator and they're either producing now or they're in a state of temporary abandonment or shut-in. Texas has over 400,000 wells. California, over 100,000 wells. Pennsylvania, over 100,000 wells. Kansas, over 90,000. Ohio, over 90,000. New Mexico, over 50,000. And North Dakota, over 25,000. So one is we're talking about a large population of wells. And our research is, is indicating that, you know, that the cost to, to plug these wells is, is going to be significantly more than the orphan well cost experience. And that for the, uh, for the shale wells, maybe as much as uh, uh, $300,000 a well. That's based on, you know, evidence that we have cost data that's coming out of Australia. So maybe more, maybe less than that, but still a pretty big number. And still and so like around 10 times what they've been saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're talking, we're talking numbers that are in the billions. And for some states, they're going to be in the tens of billions. Yeah. And, and the exercise is going to require getting a full inventory of the, uh, of the wells in each state and knowing the depth of those wells. Mm -hmm. So that, because uh, when you're talking about an exponential correlation, depth becomes really important. But I think, what, uh, I think we, we can get at that. And, uh, you know, we, we will be able to put a, a rough cost estimate uh, for statewide orphan well risk. And I think the numbers are going to be uh, shocking to a lot of folks. At a certain point, the states don't have money to do this either. And some of this work will just be left undone. Is that something that you're looking at? And what sort of the, the impact of that on, you know, communities that might live near these wells? There are a number of different ways of thinking about the environmental impact from, some, from, from these wells. 
So you could think even in places where people are not nearby, you have the potential, you know, when you have Im improperly plugged or, or you have wells that are abandoned but, but have not been plugged, mm -hmm. right? You have the potential for leakage. You have the potential for uh, toxic emissions. You have the potential for greenhouse gas emissions and the potential to infiltrate groundwater, right? right. And contaminate groundwater. But but the reality is actually you do have situations uh, in Colorado, right? You know, Burnfield's a classic example. There are many places in Colorado where you have wells that are literally within neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, same is true in California, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you go to, you know, from Los Angeles to Long Beach. Those are often incredibly costly to close. I mean, we were talking with, we were talking with somebody from CalGEM the other day about this, uh, who was responsible for that in, in, in Los Angeles. And they had to close some wells that were like 700 feet deep, something like that. So really actually quite shallow. But it was over a million dollars a well to close it because they had to re-drill the well bore. Costs can be quite significant. I mean, when you think about the, the 300,000 that we're talking about here, uh, that's sort of an average. There's all kinds of contingencies that can make it much more costly as well. But but you have to do that because you have people that are getting sick, you know, headaches, you know, nosebleeds. Uh, obviously, there's plenty of carcinogens in petroleum. Now the question is really who's going to pay? So once we once we get a handle on what's it going to cost, the question is who's actually going to pay this bill? And I think you can start, you know, first and say, is it going to be industry uh, as well? The orphan well funds are 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 not even uh, close to being up to the task of uh, retiring all the existing producing and temporarily idled wells. And then you get into landowners and citizens. So land, you know, landowners have a, have a, a lot at stake here because many of them have a, abandoned equipment on their land and surface contamination. It's not what they bargained for. And um, so they're just kind of left with a mess on their property. And then you've got citizens that are impacted by, uh, can be impacted by toxics or, or groundwater contamination. And then, and then you get to the environment. There are a lot of negative consequences to uh, abandon and unplugged wells. I guess this is naive, but I'm still sort of shocked at how willing states have been to just be left holding the bag on this. We talk a little bit about that in the paper to try to make sense of how did we get here? <laughs> so Rob describes the moral uh, hazard that exists, which is, uh, is, is quite evident when you look at it. So it begs the question, well, why did states do this? Yeah. Why did they operate this way? And I think it's actually pretty obvious. This was inevitable. These regulatory agencies were initially set up to protect the oil and gas resource, right. basically to, to, right, to, pr to protect it so we could get as much of that uh, hydrocarbon resource out of the ground as possible. And putting additional uh, costs on the industry was viewed negatively because that was going to reduce the amount of oil and gas that could, uh, could be extracted. And then you add to that the, the dynamics of uh, the, the various oil producing states and the ability of industry to play one state against the other, uh, creating a race to the bottom, right? And you still hear this kind of discussion uh, from states that, well, if we, if we increase the cost on industry, they, they're going to withdraw from our state and go someplace else. Mm. So it's in our financial best interest to keep their costs low. And, you know, that makes perfect sense until you look at the, the liability side of the balance sheet. Yeah. So uh, as long as you're pushing those costs off, discounting them uh, over decades, and essentially sort of out of sight, out of mind on the closure cost issue, 
then, then the idea of reducing the bonding costs makes good economic sense. What we're trying to do in the paper is draw attention to that, uh, uh, to the liability side of the balance sheet so that folks don't just see the asset side and realize that there is a huge bill to pay here and we simply haven't planned for it because the incentives were all going in the other direction for the past hundred years. Has there been any indication of willingness from states to potentially take these things to court? I covered the climate liability cases for a long time, and this sounds so um, similar to a lot of kind of the basis of those suits, and especially the fact that, you know, we're getting more specific costs in place here. Are you seeing any potential for, for liability suits that would cover the, the cost of damages here? You'll know if a state is interested in doing that when they actually file a complaint. Mm. Probably not Probably not before That's then. But the fact is, you know, are the conditions there for that? And I think the answer to that is yes. That's it for this time. We will stick a link to the report in the show notes so you can read through the entire thing. We will have a couple more episodes for you here and there in the next few weeks. But otherwise, we are going on production hiatus until we're ready to release the next investigative series. That will be in July sometime. I'm not going to commit to a date just yet. As a reminder, if you are a Patreon subscriber or you subscribe to our newsletter, which is a collaboration between Drilled and Hot Take that I do with Mary and Anais Hegler, you will get early access to the next season ad free. So if you haven't signed up for either of those yet and you want to support our work, we appreciate it. Please do that. We will stick a link to where you can sign up for all those things in our show notes as well. On that note, big thank you to our latest Patreon sponsors. They are Kevin McMahon, Cynthia Laffam, Skyler, Caroline Lynch, Kathy Mulvey, Kay Humphreys, Stephen Parati, and Emily Q. Thank you guys. Your support really means a lot. It's helping us do all kinds of reporting, keeping tabs on climate policy, doing more investigative projects, and putting out more seasons this year. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.